Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number seven, Ruth, chapters three and four. Well, the last time we met, we were in Ruth chapter three. And we ended with the startled but pleasantly surprised Boaz awaking in the middle of the night to find the lovely and perfumed form of Ruth lying beside his legs. And we dealt with acknowledging that while indeed there were obvious sexual overtones to Ruth's actions, we needn't go overboard and read things into the account that just aren't there. Now, courting obviously involves flirtatious interaction between males and females as one attempts to track the other. But hopefully it unfolds more in a way that the God who created man and woman intended as opposed to something that is significantly less than appropriate, especially for those who honor Yehovah as Lord of all. Thus, we examined and discarded a somewhat new interpretation of that middle-of-the-night event taking place on the threshing floor between Ruth and Boaz. And this new interpretation is that Ruth sneaked in and exposed Boaz as a supposed somewhat usual and customary indication of her interest in marriage. Not only is this rather strained attempt to find something provocative in this message of Ruth not fit a straightforward and intellectually honest and plain translation of the Hebrew narrative, but it also tosses aside the entire context all right, and the motif of the entire story that's based on two exceptionally righteous, modest, faithful followers of the God of Israel, Ruth and Boaz. Let's reread part of Ruth chapter 3, and we're going to continue our examination of these passages. Ruth chapter 3. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's in page 1059, which is a lot further back in the Bible than those of you who have another kind. You probably find it immediately following uh, Judges. We're going to start reading at verse 6. She, Ruth, went down to the threshing floor and did everything as her mother-in-law had instructed her. And after Boaz was through eating and drinking and was feeling good, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of grain. She stole in, uncovered his feet, and lay down. And in the middle of the night, the man was startled, and he turned over, and there was a woman lying at his feet. And he asked, Who are you? And she answered, I am your handmaid, Ruth. Spread your robe over your handmaid, because you are my redeeming redeeming kinsman. And he said, May Adonai bless you, my daughter. Your latest kindness is even greater than your first in that you didn't go after the young men, neither the rich ones nor the poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you everything you say. For all the city leaders among my people know that you are a woman of good character. Now, it is true that I am a redeeming kinsman. But there is a redeemer who is a closer relative than I am. Stay tonight. In the morning... He will redeem you. If he will redeem you, fine. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, then as Adonai lives, I will redeem you. Now, lie down until morning. Well, she lay at his feet until morning. Then, before it was light enough that people could recognize each other, she got up. 
because he said, no one should know that the woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring the shawl you are wearing and take hold of it. She held it while he put six measures of barley into it, and then he went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she asked, Who are you, my daughter? She told her everything the man had done for her. Then she added, He gave me these six measures of barley because he said to me, You shouldn't return to your mother-in-law with nothing. Naomi said, My daughter, just stay where you are until you learn how the matter comes out, because the man won't rest until he resolves the matter today. Now I want to go forward with today's lesson using the words of the Christian Bible scholar D.B. MacDonald as our context for visualizing this scene. He writes this about the threshing floor incident. He says, Boaz is shown quietly handling the situation like a gentleman and not either as an old fool or a village lout. He may be countryfied, but he has dignity and restraint. Now a hidden key to Ruth's mindset and intent is in her choice of words in response to Boaz's startled question in the middle of the night, Who are you? And she responds with, I am Ruth, your handmaiden. Now the Hebrew word that's being translated is ama, And indeed it means handmaiden. But it is also quite significant in that it is a socially higher term than nokri, which is how she presented her status to Boaz upon their first meeting out in the field. Now, nokri means a foreigner, an alien. And it can have such a negative sense to it that it even event, the term even eventually came to mean an adulterous woman when it was used in certain circumstances. It's not unlike a Christian referring to somebody as a pagan or a heathen. All right? The point is that a nokri is an outsider to the Jewish community, who, by law, was not truly eligible for marriage to a Hebrew man. But, in describing herself now as an ama, a handmaiden, Ruth has dropped this outsider persona in favor of being a member of the Jewish community, even if it's as a very lowly person of the servant class. But even more important for this story anyway, is that Amma is a class of women who can be taken by a Hebrew free man, either as a legitimate concubine or a wife. So between the time of her first encounter with Boaz and now, Ruth has taken another step in her assimilation into the Jewish society. Now, some months earlier, she was in the process of leaving behind her Gentile identification as a member of Moab, but had not yet fully transitioned to becoming a member um, of the Jewish society of Israel. She was kind of in limbo. 
Right? And this was expressed in her very conscious and intended expression of seeing herself as a no-cree. Now I contend that this is a good illustration of the process that every Gentile disciple of Yeshua is meant to undertake as we journey from leaving behind the inherently pagan nature of the Gentile world into the inherently set-apart-for-God world of Israel. Of course, especially since the advent of Messiah Jesus, this is a spiritual journey. Not so much a physical one as it was at one point in time. We don't exchange our national identities from whatever we currently are to Israeli because we accept the work of Christ as our redemption. But we are to make a conscious connection with God's people because we have assumed their God and the, the divine ideals sent down to earth from that God. And we've accomplished it all under the terms of the private and exclusive covenants God made and has maintained with the Hebrews. But after subtly identifying herself as a person who was legally now eligible for marriage, Ruth then boldly asks Boaz to marry her by saying, Spread your robe over your Amah, your handmaiden, because you are a goel, you are a redeeming kinsman. Adding yet another key Hebrew word, what she said was, spread your kanaf over your handmaiden because you are a redeeming kinsman. We discussed the deeper meaning of the term kanaf a few lessons ago when we studied chapter 2 verse 12. And that's where we have Boaz giving Ruth a blessing. And he says to her, May Yehovah reward you for what you have done. May you be rewarded in full by the Elohim of Israel, under whose kanaf wings you have come for refuge. Now, at that time we looked ahead to this chapter, chapter 3, so that we could make the connection between Ruth first coming under Yehovah's kanaf, for the purpose of refuge, and now under Boaz's kanaf for the purpose of refuge. The first was a spiritual refuge by means of a spiritual marriage to the God of Israel, so to speak. And the second was an earthly physical refuge by means of an earthly physical marriage to Boaz. While Ruth's words may need some interpretation to us moderns, it needed none for Boaz, who perfectly understood what she was asking. The venerable Jewish rabbi and scholar Rashi said this about Ruth's words to Boaz. These are lovely. He said this, Also, when she said, Spread your kanaf over your maidservant. This was an allusion to what Hashem, God, said to the Jewish people at the time of giving the Torah, I have borne you on the kanafe wings of eagles and brought you to me. Just as Hashem showed his love for the Jewish people in this way, Ruth asked Boaz to show her the love of marriage. 
I find that not only on, not only on target, but profound. Very profound and moving. Okay. It's amazing when we look behind the English into the original Hebrew, how much there is to discover there. Now it's here in verse 9 that we get a very interesting twist. Ruth says that the reason she feels justified in asking Boaz to take her as a bride is because he is her goel and thus bears an obligation to her and her family. And this takes us back to our last lesson when we discussed the institutions of goel, kinsman redeemer, and leverate marriage. Now I urge you to go back and study that lesson portion if it's not clear to you yet. But briefly, Leveret marriage was a Middle Eastern custom and it was practiced by the Hebrews ages before the law was given on Mount Sinai. And the idea was that a brother-in-law is to marry his sister-in-law, his brother's widow, if that brother dies and the woman hasn't yet produced an heir, a son. And the purpose for this is so that the male child produced by this new marriage will be considered the offspring of that deceased brother. And thus the deceased brother's family line and name will continue to exist within Israel. won't become extinct. However, the divine ordinance on this matter as given to Moses on Mount Sinai, is very limited in scope. And it covers only brothers-in-law bearing this duty of leverate marriage to their sisters-in-law. That's it. If there's no brother-in-law, if the brother-in-law refuses to do his duty, there is no other solution available to the widow. That's it. We saw an example of this very thing back in Genesis with Judah's sons who were killed by God for refusing to do their leverate duty in this matter. Remember the story of Tamar, Judah? So how does the law of leverate marriage apply to Ruth and Boaz? Answer, despite most Christian commentaries speaking to the contrary, it doesn't. It has nothing to do with it. Ruth's deceased husband had no surviving brothers. That should have been the end of the Leverate marriage solution for Ruth and Naomi, but somewhere along the line after Mount Sinai, Hebrew society saw the need for a better way to deal with these unfortunate women and their families when there was no brother-in-law to marry the widow. So they invented another way. They added the duty of marrying a childless widow to the already existing list of various duties of the family Goel. All right. So for the Goel, the duty to marry a widowed relative who was without a son, it would have been seen for that person less as an onerous civil legal and scriptural requirement that brought great shame, by the way, on a brother-in-law who refused to do his duty in leverate marriage. And, and rather, it was more seen as a very positive act of hesed, 
loving kindness that made this kind of marriage kind of optional. And, and it depended on the conscience of the family Goel. And that said, this mindset not to socially ostracize a family redeemer who refused this duty of marriage is because it was usually that there was a whole number of possible family redeemers who could have taken on the role of Goel. And thus while the senior Goel, the the, the closest male family member, would have been looked down upon for not doing all the duties incumbent upon him, there were typically other males in the family who could also perform those duties. So, the refusal of the most senior redeemer, the most senior Goel, to marry the widow wasn't seen as quite as serious as it was for that brother-in-law who refused to marry his widowed sister-in-law. Thus, in the end, what Ruth asked Boaz to do is the result of Hebrew custom and tradition, not the laws of Torah. Okay. Now, is there anything inherently wrong with the, inst- uh, with the uh, Israelites instituting this type of tradition? I would say no. As an analogy, just as there are seven ordained biblical feasts that are commanded by God, there is also Hanukkah, and perhaps we could add to that Purim, that are regular celebrations among the Jews. Is there anything wrong about celebrating Hanukkah and Purim merely because they were created by men and not God-ordained? Not at all. Where it can go wrong is when we as humans declare Hanukkah and Purim, or Easter and Christmas for that matter, holy. And elevate them in importance as though they were on par, or even above, the truly God-ordained holy days. Thus, for Israel to have developed a tradition within their society to care for widows and to see to it that the family line of a childless deceased man continued, even if the solution was outside of the levirate marriage provisions, is certainly not wrong. But let's be clear that just because it's not a sin, that hardly elevates it to being a holy thing. Rather such things, if appropriately carried out, ought to be viewed more as deeds of loving kindness. Deeds of hesed. Good deeds. Appropriate deeds. Not necessarily God-ordained deeds, except in the general sense of obeying the most foundational commandment of them all. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Now this may all sound complex and kind of confusing and technical or like I'm slicing that onion awfully thin. All right, but here's another way to think of it. Nowhere in the Bible is the term goel, redeemer, ever applied to the brother-in-law in a levirate marriage. Okay. A brother-in-law was not labeled as a goel. Goel was an entirely separate institution 
totally apart from literate marriage. Therefore, here in Ruth, we see Ruth base her appeal to Boaz to marry her not on the God-ordained duty of a brother-in-law for a levirate marriage, because there was no brother-in-law involved here, but rather the appeal was for the Goel, the family redeemer, to marry her, the childless widow, even though she was a significantly distant relative of Boaz. And even that was based on a man-made tradition, not strictly the law, which only put the absolute duty of marrying the widow upon that brother-in-law. So, just as we have seen that despite modern popular interpretations, Ruth did not do anything of an objectionable sexual nature to Boaz and lifting up his blanket to uncover his legs, neither was there a hope of levirate marriage going on here. Not at all. all right? Because the circumstances simply didn't apply. Now, further we need to understand that the God principle behind our kinsman-redeemer Yeshua, seeing the church as his bride, and there even being a marriage ceremony in the future, has nothing to do with Torah-based Leverite marriage or Goel-based marriage of a widow, because Goel-based marriage was established as a man-made tradition. You with me? Okay. So none of those specific circumstances apply to us. Yeshua is not our brother-in-law. We are not childless widows. Okay. There are other reasons, other aspects of being a kinsman redeemer that are biblical and scriptural that Yeshua was acting out on our behalf. Now moving on to verse 10. Boaz's reply to Ruth is kind of odd. He says that what Ruth has just proposed to him is her doing an act of hesed, of kindness for him. He says, bless you my daughter for your latest kindness is even greater than your first. In other words, Boaz seems pretty grateful for Ruth's advance towards him. Why? Well, he goes on to say that it was because she approached him, an old man, rather than going after the younger men for marriage. Now let's not misunderstand what's happening here. Well, I'm pretty sure Boaz was rather flattered at Ruth's proposal of marriage, as just as it was pretty exciting to find that pretty young woman lying next to him in the middle of the night. The context of this is more contained in the words, your latest has said is even greater than your first. Ruth's first has said was her selfless commitment to care for her aged Jewish mother-in-law, Naomi, and to forsake her homeland and to change her loyalty to Israel and to Israel's God. So what is Ruth's latest act? of loving kindness? Was it choosing a man that was probably older than Naomi when she could have had a much younger, handsomer, more vibrant young man to marry? Not really. Rather it was that she chose to follow the Israelitish ways so completely 
that she could never even consider doing anything but marrying her Jewish family's Goel. Ruth could have solved her own personal dilemma of being a poor widow by marrying a young man with a good future. But she wouldn't have solved Naomi's problem of needing an heir to carry on Elimelech's name and clan line if she had married some younger man who was not the family redeemer. Ruth would have been a prize catch, no doubt. It's apparent that only her outward beauty matched her tender demeanor and her good character. She would have had young suitors lined up. Instead, she chose Boaz, a much older man. Consider as a practicality that Boaz was at the least in the autumn, if not the winter of his life. A few more years is probably about the best that Ruth could hope for with Boaz, and then she'd be a widow again. Boaz was as practical and wise as he was kind and gentle. And so Ruth's willingness to provide an heir for Naomi by marrying a Goel like the aged Boaz even exceeded her impressive kindness of following Naomi from Moab to care for her. And Boaz instantly recognized the gravity and the selflessness of Ruth's decision, even his blurry-eyed state and in the darkness of that late hour there in the uh, threshing room floor. But, But I can't help but comment that, you know, Ruth made a pretty wise choice for herself, too. I think Ruth saw beyond Boaz's elderliness and saw a a man of rare kindness keen sense of duty, determined purity, and proper fear and respect for God. Boaz had also shown Ruth a lot of tenderness and respect. Who could possibly have been a better husband for Ruth than Boaz? But verse 12 now throws a stumbling block into Naomi's plan that up to now has gone on just like clockwork. Boaz points out that while he is certainly prepared to do all that Ruth has said, because her fine character is known well among the community of the people of Bethlehem, there is another family, Goel, who is a somewhat closer relative to Elimelech than himself. And Boaz, being the kind of man he is, can't disregard the rights of this other Goel who holds the senior position in line. So he tells Ruth about this other family redeemer and says that she should stay here at the threshing floor the rest of the night and then in the morning Boaz would seek a meeting with this man at the city gates which was the usual place of legal business in the Middle East. If this other potential Goel won't accept the responsibility to redeem Ruth then Boaz will be in the clear to do so, and he promises that he will. Well, verse 14 shows that Ruth complied, at least partly, I suppose, because Naomi had admonished her to do everything that Boaz told her to do. But then as the night was ending, Boaz told Ruth to go home before people saw her leaving the area, because they might assume the worst. And what we see 
is that Boaz acted responsibly towards Ruth in four specific ways. First, he didn't tell her to leave and go home in the dark, thus exposing her to danger. He also didn't touch her until she would be rightfully his. He protected the rights of the kinsman that was the near relative to the deceased Elimelech than himself. And finally, he vowed to resolve this matter within hours and accept the results, however it turned out. But Boaz wasn't yet through with his kindness. He instructed Ruth to use her shawl, probably the simla, the outer garment that she was wearing, and to grab hold of the edge of it. And into it he dumped six measures of barley grain for her to take home to Naomi. Now, we really don't know the exact quantity because we don't know what those six measures were. Okay. Were they an ephah, about 30 pounds, or a seah, about 10 pounds, or something else? It's, of course, doubtful it was six, seah, uh, six uh, ephahs, all right, as it's kind of hard to imagine Ruth carrying 180 pounds of grain back to her mother-in-law. But on the other hand, six seahs is a little bit less than what Ruth had gleaned on that day that Boaz had told his hired men to pull some of the stalks out of the sheaves for her to glean more easily and productively. In any case, whatever he gave her was a very generous amount of barley and she returned home with it. When she arrives home, it probably wasn't yet fully daylight. So verse 16 has a very startled Naomi asking this shadowy figure entering her dwelling place, Who are you? Is it Ruth? And then Ruth told her what had transpired that night. Now Naomi saw the gift of grain and knew exactly what this was about. The barley was a sign of good faith from Boaz. So Naomi told Ruth to just be at peace, stay home, because Boaz wasn't going to rest until this whole matter was resolved. Ruth was going to be redeemed by the as yet unnamed other Goel, or if he refused to do his duty, Boaz would marry her. Either way, Ruth was about to have a new husband. And Naomi desperately needed heir for her deceased husband, Elimelech. Well, now that the tension is building, and the climax to our story is getting near, let's move on to chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4, page 1060 in your complete Jewish Bible. Meanwhile, Boaz had gone up to the gate and had sat down there, and when the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, passed by, he said, such and such, come over and sit down. So he came over and sat down. And he took ten of the city's leaders and said, sit down here. And they sat down. Then he said to the redeeming kinsman, The parcel of land which used to belong to our relative Elimelech is being offered for sale by Naomi, who is returned from the plain of Moab. I thought I should tell you about it and say, Buy it in the presence of the people sitting here and in the presence of the leaders of my people. If you want to redeem it, redeem it. But if it is not to be redeemed, then tell me, so that I can know, because there is no one else in line to redeem it, and I'm after you. He said, I want to redeem it. Then Boaz said, well, the same day you buy the field from Naomi, you must also buy Ruth the woman from Moab, the wife of the deceased 
son in order to raise up the name of the deceased an heir for his property. And the Redeemer said, well then I can't redeem it for myself. Because if I put my own, uh, because it might put my own inheritance at risk, you take my right of redemption on yourself because I can't redeem it. In the past, this is what was done in Israel to validate all transactions involving redemption and exchange. A man took off his shoe and he gave it to the other party. This was the form of attestation in Israel. So the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself and took off his shoe. Boaz addressed the leaders and the people. You are all witnesses today that I am purchasing from Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, all that belonged to Kilion and Machlon. Also I am acquiring as my wife Ruth, the woman from Moab, the wife of Machlon, in order to raise up in the name of the deceased an heir for his property, so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his kinsmen from the gate of this place. You are witnesses today. We'll stop there and talk about that. Now we're going to get technical and detailed with some of the issues in this chapter. A lot, we've done a lot of that <laughs> to this point in Ruth. And there's a very good reason for it. Okay. It's not so you all become scholarly experts in the nuances and finer details of the law of Moses or of ancient Jewish culture. Rather, it's because an underlying current all throughout the book of Ruth is this. How a society of believers in the God of Israel, Jews in this case living in and around Bethlehem, grappled with matters that either had no obvious and directly pertinent answers that they could take from the Torah as a solution, or because circumstances within Israel had evolved in the 300 years or so since the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, to a point where it just wasn't always a reasonable and straightforward way that the Levitical religious code could be applied as is to the situation at hand. Those Jews of Beit Lechem were not trying to be disobedient. Okay? Rather, just as we often find today, it's, it's that life is just not so black and white. Because we might prefer it anyway. Or, it is often not obvious to us how to obtain God's will for a situation. Or is it always simple to determine which of his many laws and commands ought to be applied to any particular situation? We who have returned to a study of the whole world, uh, word of God and who seek to rediscover a, an obedience to God are not finding the path quite as straight as we might have hoped for. Okay? How do we take those 3,500 year old Laws given to Moses out in that desert wilderness. Divine commands set down in a Middle Eastern cultural setting and apply that to our modern 21st century problems and circumstances. Okay? The answer for us really is the same as it was for the Jews of Ruth's era. We are to make a concerted effort 
to understand the whole of God's laws and commandments so that we can get a very well-rounded and thorough understanding of God's underlying principles. And then using that understanding together with Holy Spirit guidance, mold it to address the circumstance at hand in whatever era or cultural setting we find ourselves. In the case of Naomi and Ruth, they were childless widows. But there was no living brother-in-law for either of them to be taken as wives under the law of levirate marriage. So how was this situation going to be remedied? Did God intend that because Naomi and Ruth's particular circumstance wasn't covered by the Leverite marriage ordinances, that their lives should become hopeless? That their deceased husband's family lines ought to come to a dead end? Using the underlying and overriding God principle of loving your neighbor as yourself. And then applying an offshoot of that principle whereby God's followers offer loving kindness, hesed, to the afflicted. The Jewish sages decided that it would be an appropriate solution to require the family redeemer, the family goel, to take such a widow into his home and then do for her what a Leverite marriage would accomplish if the circumstances had been different. Now we're going to see this same logic applied when it comes to the matter of the divine laws governing Naomi and her land inheritance. See, technically, you see, there was no provision for a widow to inherit land. And I'm going to go into some depth to explain both the unusual nature of Naomi's predicament and the rather complex solution that was designed to solve it. Verse 1 of chapter 4 begins this legal process employed in that era to settle matters of land redemption. And it takes place at the city gate. Because it was the traditional Middle Eastern place where legal transactions were concluded. We find, for example, that Abraham purchased a burial place for Sarah at the city gate. Kings would sit at the city gates to judge. Elders would meet at the city gates to settle disputes. The city gate was also where people met to debate politics or simply to have friendly conversations. The city gate was the courtroom and the town square all combined at that time. If you wanted to be sure to run into somebody at some point during the day, you sat at the city gate and you waited for them. This is what we find Boaz doing. And sure enough, the senior family Goel, for Elimelech's family, strolled through the gate and Boaz hailed him down. Now the author of the book of Ruth, for whatever reason, chose not to reveal the name of this senior Goel. We don't know why. Except that apparently who it was really didn't much matter to the story. Thus we find a lot of Bibles calling him Mr. So-and-so or Mr. Such-and-such. Okay. Now Boaz asks the man to come and sit down by him. Then he asks the ten men of the elders, uh, the ten, ten, ten men of the elders of the city of Bethlehem, to sit down as witnesses to this legal proceeding. 
Now these elders were recognized community authorities with the power to decide cases. In later rabbinic interpretation, the assembly of ten men became the basis for what's called a minyan. All right, the minimum legal number of men needed to hold a synagogue service. Well, with all the parties now in attendance, Boaz states his case, beginning in verse 3. And he begins by saying that this proceeding is about Naomi, who has returned from Moab, and that it involves the selling of a parcel of land that belonged to her family. Further, that the head of the family is the deceased Elimelech. And Boaz refers to Elimelech as our brother. Now the Hebrew word used here for brother is ah. And it's another of those terms where meaning varies greatly according to the context. Ah can mean brother like a sibling. More often in the Bible it's referring to any male family member. He can even mean a, a distant relative. It's also used several times in the Bible as a term of endearment. That can kind of mean as a brother, like a very dear friend. He's like a brother to me, even though there's no blood relationship. In this case, the unnamed family Goel is not, of course, Elimelech's sibling, but rather just some anonymous member of Elimelech's clan. Well, Boaz explains that because Mr. So-and-so is the nearest qualifying Goel, he has that right of first refusal to redeem that land through purchase. But Boaz also makes it clear that if he doesn't, want to, if he doesn't wish to redeem that land, Boaz will do it. Now, now please take note of something here. This whole matter suddenly shifts from Ruth to Naomi. Okay. In other words, I'll remind you that in the introduction to the book of Ruth, I explained that while Ruth was the central female character and the book's namesake, in fact, this story is about coming to a resolution to solve Naomi's problem. It's just that in many ways, Ruth was the solution. Okay. Now, there is a long-standing problem with these verses that we're going to end with today. And some of you may have already spotted it. We're going to go into great length with this next week. The problem is this. Had Naomi already sold the land to somebody? Or was it that she intended to sell the land and this is at least part of what was going on at the city gates? Which was the case. I discussed the matter with you in earlier lessons that biblical Hebrew does not use past, present, and future tenses. Instead, it uses what's called perfect and imperfect or complete and incomplete tenses. Thus, in biblical Hebrew, the issue is not when something took place, it was whether the matter was ongoing or was completed. Verse 3 of chapter 4 of Ruth used the perfect tense regarding the disposition of the land, which means the action of selling the land had been completed, implying that Ruth had already sold it to somebody. But verses 5 and 9 
use the imperfect tense. That means that the action of selling the land was ongoing. It had not been completed. Therefore, there's this never-ending argument among scholars as to whether Naomi had already sold the land to somebody or not. But this even begs another question. We're going to talk about this extensively. What right did the widow Naomi have to sell the family land? Only the possessor of the land could sell it. And by the laws of Moses, no widow could possess the land. So how do we sort this out? Well, this is where we're going to go into some depth over the matter of women and land inheritance but we'll do all that next time, and at the same time, we're going to finish up our study of the Book of Ruth. Okay.